Jensen Beeler. And I'm Quentin Wilson. And together we are the Two Enthusiast Podcast. Two Enthusiast Podcast. Your local moto monger is here. Moto monger? Like moto. a cheese monger? Like a cheese monger, like a fish people, monger. People don't know what monger means. We're, we're, we're selling you some motos. Uh, Quentin, we are super lucky today. We have a guest. I know. It's we, we, we made a friend. <laughs> guest, 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 guest. <laughs> we have Mr. Adam Wahid in the hizzes. Woo, yeah. Woo, yeah. The audience loves him. Loves him. <laughs> All about the Wahid. So, Adam, I've known you. I don't know how long I've known you. I've known you for a while, but we know each other from, from riding motorcycles at press launches and other press events. And now you're a quasi-local Oregonian. I'm an Oregonian. We're, we're welcoming you into the family. I love the rain. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's a lie. <laughs> I feel like it's a bold-faced lie. But you're one of the cool motorcycle dudes. And so, obviously, we wanted you to have you on the show to talk to talk bikes with us, with Q and I. And um, I don't think until today you haven't probably met Quentin, have you? No, we haven't no, met no, each other. No, no, sure. no. So this is I, like, I feel like I'm chaperoning our first date. <laughs> that's cute. Just you stay on either end of the couch. Don't touch. You're you're a minority in this long hair parade over here, right? <laughs> you guys good. do have a lot of yeah, hair. There's going a lot on. of hair. In there the is show. a lot. Sure. Yeah. I feel very inadequate. I should let the beard grow out a little bit longer. It, it well, my hair is a lot grayer though. Yeah, I'm yeah. actually shaving everything. I just wanted to get this last long beard while I'm in Portland, yeah, like yeah. live the experience. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, the look totally. you fit in. It's just like good, right? <laughs> Definitely think you're local for sure. Yeah. So you're originally though from Minnesota. Yeah, so I'm I'm originally from St. Paul, Minnesota, Woodbury, Minnesota to be exact, which is a suburb of St. Paul. And uh, yeah, I just was kind of, I wasn't born there. I was born in Chicago, but I spent most of my, you know, youth in Minnesota. And I just lived there from probably the time I was six to 23. And then, you know, obviously- So you went to school there? I did go to school there. Yeah, I went to school there. Um, I went to a couple of different colleges, um, community colleges there. I never finished. I could just never had the, I just couldn't do it, man. Like every time I would start, like I would just get so frustrated and hated going so much that I would stop. I would take a break. Then I'd be like, I'm going to try again. And I would try again. And I'd be good for three months. Then I get frustrated and do that again. And that was like the psych cycle of my post high school education for like six years. <laughs> Were you uh, into journalism at that time? I wasn't. I wasn't at all. I actually, I didn't even, I didn't like to write. I didn't like English. I didn't like anything like that. Huh. I was kind of forced into it. Literally, I was forced into it. How? And that's how I learned. Well, my, my friend who became my boss at the time at Motorcycle USA, they, they had an, opening for someone like me um the problem was well they needed someone who could ride the motorcycles you know and look good in photos and not crash the bikes give some feedback hopefully be able to write a coherent uh essay on on the experience which i couldn't do at all in the beginning but hmm. he's like oh don't worry about it man we'll, we'll teach you you'll learn how to do it and so i kind of just got thrown into the deep end and i just had to kind of figure it out was that in Medford or in L.A.? That was in SoCal, in, okay. in, in Orange County, SoCal. Got it. So, so what had taken, was that what took you from uh, the Midwest to SoCal? Was that thing? No, I actually moved out of out of Minnesota just because, you know, uh, in my early 20s, you know, I was riding all the time. That's all I wanted to do was ride my motorcycle. And obviously, being in Minnesota, it's similar to here, but probably 10 times worse. Yeah, way worse. Where, you know, sure. November comes around yeah. and you're not riding. 
till April if you're lucky. Yeah. You know, if you're lucky. Lucky. Yeah. Sure. You know, like maybe I remember in November we'd have a crazy fluke day where it would be like 65 degrees and we'd yep. go ride, obviously. But I mean, you're literally like right now it's probably negative 10 degrees and snow everywhere. So the whole impetus for moving to SoCal was I, you know, I didn't have a lot of stuff going for me in my life in retrospect, but I loved riding motorcycles. That was fun. I want to do that every day. Where can I go do that every day? SoCal. So that's where I went. What were you riding at the time? Dirt street? Uh, I was kind of riding anything, man. I had like, I was doing some club racing up in, uh, uh, like CRA, which is like yep. the local club racing series Brainerd. up in Brainerd. Yeah. Yep. So we did that. You know, I would like to ride on the street. Um, there's actually, at the time, there was a big sport bike riding community, you know, on the street. So in the summertime, you know, me and hundreds of other people my age would meet at, you know, a gas station, you know, off 35W at 10 p.m. on most any summer night. And we'd ride from 10 p.m. till 3 in the morning, you know, and we'd ch get chased by cops, get chased by helicopters. People would crash. People would die. It was just, it was like really wild. And it was, it was fun. Like it was like, I don't even know. I don't think that exists anymore. Those, those, that biker gang that we ran with, or I don't even think the people these days would even participate in that kind of biker community, you know? I've because heard this a few times. There's different places in the in the U.S., whether it be Houston or Los Angeles, or there's kind of like these days from the late 90s, early 2000s. Is that about the time when you were talking? Yeah, or like if, I'm talking like 1997 yeah. through 2000. That, that seems like to be a trend. And the same thing happened here in Portland. I hear the stories about we used to do this at this spot and everybody would go here and you don't hear it about it any longer. And that's an interesting thing. I wonder what has changed over the past 20 years that has made it to where people don't do that any well, longer. It was right on the tail end of like the heyday of sport bikes, you know? Yeah. So everyone was into them for whatever reason. Well, cause they're fun as hell. That's why you'd be into them. Yeah, sure. So, you know, they were relatively expensive, you know, racing was really popular in America at the time. You know, I guess m m right now though, like Washington DC, they still have a huge sport bike community. Like those kind of wild yeah. antics still go, go happen in the summers there. But, uh, other places like Minnesota, I think it's probably toned down a little bit. I'm sure there's little pockets. But that bottom line is you were doing that so much. All right, I got it. I got to get out. Right, what were you racing at the time? Were uh, you I had a – what did I have? I first started racing with this 1996 Kawasaki ZX-7R. And this was just the standard R. That year they had yeah. an RR with yeah. flat side carbs. Yeah. But I didn't have that one. I wanted it, but I didn't have it. Sure. And, you know, that at the time was like my dream bike. Like I just, you know, that Muzzy Kawasaki was like kicking butt yep. in AMA Superbike. Sure. And that's the bike I wanted. I bought it. You know, in hindsight, it actually was kind of a good bike. It had actually a fantastic chassis, but it was just so un incredibly slow. It was insane. Especially relative to at that time, the the new GSX-R750 had just come out. And yeah, it was no, kind even, of like, even at that time, it was slow. Like, it was slow back then. Even even before that. Yeah, yeah sure. I mean, by now nowadays standards, you would just be like, what is this thing? Like, dude, I bet a CBR600RR is faster than that thing nowadays. Probably so. So, but yeah, I was racing that. Then I did that for like a year or two. And then I'm like, I'm going to get something better. And that was right when Yamaha came out with their with their YZFR6. So I got, I think I purchased a brand new 2000 YZFR6, which was the 
second year. So the first year was 99, I believe. So I bought the second year model. And man, I just started wailing on that thing. I remember riding it home from the dealership. And this is like the spring of 2000. It's probably April. So it was still cold out. You know, there's still cold in Minnesota, like 40 degrees. I'm riding it home from the dealership. And I'm riding down, you know, to my house. And there's like a little rise in the road. And, you know, the bike's brand new, probably like 42 miles on it. And like, I'm going by the rise. And I'm like, I wonder if this thing can do a wheelie in second gear. You're like, I wonder if it can do it. And sure enough, it does a power wheelie in second gear. And I was just like, oh my God. Like I was just blown away that this brand new 600cc sport bike could do a wheelie in second gear where my ZX7R that just sold couldn't barely do a wheelie in first gear because it was such a big turd. So I was just like, this is awesome. I was so happy that at that moment. Did you end up racing that bike? Or? Yeah, so I raced that bike. So so I right when I bought it, you know, I I went crazy. I brought it to the shop, got the pipe put on there, you know, got it dyno tuned because you had carburetors back then. So you had to jet the carbs when you put a pipe on, you know, bought shark skins for it, got it painted, you know, got my suspension to race tech, just went just, you know, hog wild on it and just started racing. And then, you know, probably my second or third race, I totally destroyed it. And then... <laughs> Had to buy another one, and then that's kind of how it went, but it was definitely fun. And that's how you became kind of a hot shoe to your friend who was involved with motorcycle. That that was the beginnings of your experience as a uh, as a, as a, a racer or a rider. And as, yeah, it was kind of a beginning as my experience of kind of just riding kind of fast, you know, yeah. I guess, sort of, okay. you know. So when that, when you got to L.A., or the LA area, what part of LA did you settle in in the beginning? Well, me and my buddy, we didn't really know where we wanted to move, you know? So we kind of just, we kind of threw a dart at the map, basically. And at the time, I was kind of riding dirt bikes a lot. And, you know, I was reading the, the magazines and the Racer X's and this sure. and that. And it seemed like Temecula, California was the hotbed for riding dirt bikes. Yeah. So I'm like, I'm moving to Temecula. So that's where we kind of moved. Me and my buddy Matt, we just loaded up my cargo van hmm. and threw his car on the back of my van on a on a on a car hauler kind of thing yeah. and just drove drove out here. I remember we were driving on I eighty through Denver and my van was like you know it was an old clapped out Ford E three fifty you know brakes barely worked and did it have windows was there like a free candy van or did no it was, was a, a it was a cargo van it was a full like okay. rapist van okay and I remember we're that, going that's where I was going with that <laughs> we're going down the hill and you know <laughs> like it's those steep hills and we have you know this big heavy car behind me and I'm trying to slow down and the car's not slowing down I had to use my e brake and. It was kind of kind of wild, but fun. We made it. <laughs> but you made it. Yeah, we made yeah. it. Yeah. So so I guess we probably should have started with your professional resume before getting too deep in it. You're with Riders Domain now, but you worked with Motorcycle USA before that, and correct, correct. So right now, uh, I'm the content director at Jake Wilson. Uh, Jake Wilson is an e-commerce company that sells parts and accessories for street bikes. Right now, we're in the middle of transitioning from Jake Wilson to Riders Domain. So Jake Wilson, it's lived a good life, but Jake Wilson's retiring, and uh, he's passing the torch to Riders Domain, and this is our new company that we've launched here. And uh, Riders Domain's basically, it's a it's an e-commerce company, and, and we actually have a magazine component attached to it. And it's kind of going to be, basically, we're, what we're trying to build is we're trying to build 
a resource for motorcyclists. So, so if you ride street bikes, whether you know you ride a, a Harley Davidson bagger or you ride a sport bike or you ride a scooter, as long as you ride a street bike, we want you to come come to our website. You know, check it out, read about the new bikes, read about gear, be a resource for motorcycling. Uh, we actually don't have a lot of riders resources things like how to buy insurance, how to pick a helmet. We don't have that stuff right now on our website, but we're in the process of cultivating and making it. And that's going to be kind of the plan is just to make like a, a hub for motorcyclists, okay. road motorcyclists. I mean, so that's an interesting, that's an interesting business model because going from Motorcycle USA, which was, I would say more pure journalistic entity there was motorcycle superstore as well but the the division between the two brands was very strong i'd say yeah no no it, it was strong like in the beginning um before my time they were a little bit more intertwined but then they kind of grew apart as the company went on um that was kind of always like the the thing at motorcycle and usa motorcycle superstore like should we be together should we be separate like it was always like an ebb and flow where different periods periods of time it's like a twilight episode <laughs> yeah, it, it was weird sometimes they want to smash us together and sometimes they want <laughs> us to be totally separate yeah. so it really just depended on what year yeah. and who was kind of running it at yeah. the time it's like a bad teen movie but, how but, did but, you, but, how but thank did... you jensen because that that was the ultimate goal goal was to have it be separate yeah. you know you had your 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 e-commerce world here where you could buy stuff and you had your independent you know news and review source here right you know well, yeah, and that's why it's so interesting to me, uh, and I didn't even realize it until just now like that, you were a part of that kind of entity, and that was very, I would say, old school in, in, in how they approach things. And now we kind of have like RevZilla in the space, which is another e-commerce arm, building out, uh, what was it, Common Tread, is their kind of e-zine, journalistic, entertainment, whatever you want to call it, component to the store. And it sounds like you guys are kind of doing something different, even though... Uh, I would say the Jake Wilson brand and the writer's domain brands are definitely a different kind of thing. You're doing it your own way, but it's still that kind of like e-commerce and journalism and content and marketing all kind of wrapped up in a new kind of ball. And that's very new for the motorcycle industry. It, it kind of is new. I mean, when you think about it, really, we were kind of doing that same thing at Motorcycle USA and Superstore. Obviously there was a little bit more of a clear, you know, uh, line, but, from kind of the way the world is going, the way content marketing and how popular it is now, that's kind of the strategy that that like Revzilla is going after, or we're going after, you know, Twisted Throttle. Um, I mean, there's so many companies nowadays that have like a blog embedded in their e-com site, you know, just trying to to build, you know, the readership and the base, you sure. know. In, in an effort for people, when it's time to purchase something, you're going to go with them. You know, that's kind of the theory. That's like the interesting part for me is like, I guess it's not so crazy to think about online retailers having a blog, having content, giving people a reason to show up to their site every day, even if they're not there to, to, re, to buy something. I get that part of it. But what's interesting for me, at least just, just like on a more of a personal level than like a professional level, is seeing... Uh, like guys like you at the press launches, guys like the Revzilla guys showing up and and being a part of that kind of core moto journalistic group and having and seeing OEMs kind of take them seriously is like, oh, yeah, you've got that. Yeah, you're part of that online retailer, but we're treating you 
more like a journalist or more like a media person than we are like a, a an outlet or an OEM selling parts store or whatever. A vendor. Yeah. A vendor. Thank yeah. you. That was the word I was looking for. And that's that's really interesting. It's interesting to see the motorcycle industry evolving in that way. I mean, do do you think that's good or or indifferent or what? Yeah, no, it's it's very interesting. It's funny because you know, uh, ten years ago, ten years ago, you know, if you had an online motorcycle magazine, like people would laugh at you. Like they're like, we're not we're not sending you to the CBR one thousand R press launch. No way, man. Only print magazines, you know, and and, you know, that slowly shifted. Like, it took a long time. Like, even at the end of Motorcycle USA, you know, we were the biggest online property, you know, a year ago. And even at the end, we still weren't getting invited to everything, right. you know, where, and that's just because that, that the industry still isn't totally made that, that, that acceptance of online like they start it's you know they're 80 percent there now but still like it, it's taken so long you know like i know for a long time like ktm uh, i love those guys but they wouldn't even consider an online magazine till very recently very recently i can think of a few brands that are like that and it, it's yeah. just crazy like the i love the motorcycle world but it it takes a long time for them to to react to to modern principles and things that other industries have accepted many years ago, sometimes it takes a little bit longer in the motorcycle world. Why do you think that is? What what is your take on why that is? <sighs> There's just a million different reasons why. I mean, you know, who's steering the ship at these companies? You know, like what information? How does he intake his information? There's yeah. There's just a million different reasons. But I to kind of get back to to Jensen's question, I think the whole landscape shifted a lot. And, you know, companies like Yamaha, companies like KTM, companies like Ducati are more open to take these risks and invite entities that a couple years ago no one would even touch, you know? And I think that's cool. I think everyone's kind of, you know, they everyone's realized that the world is changing, um, things that worked, you know, two years ago are different and people are kind of trying different things in an effort to tell their brand story and reach a, a new, you know, demographic or, or new type of person. I think it's cool. Yeah. But when I started Asphalt and Rubber, like what, eight plus years ago, like that was, that was the challenge, right? I'd have to go in and be like, okay, guys, so this is the internet, and it's this series of tubes, and people talk about things on it, and one of the things they talk about is motorcycles, and one of the places they do that at is Asphalt and Rubber, and that's why you should invite me to press launches and buy advertising. And I feel like the recession, though, really actually helped the industry in a lot of ways, because sales tanked, marketing budgets got shrunk, but there was still this like expectation of like, okay, you know, you have to maintain what you were doing before. So now you have to like get away with like twice the sex with half the foreplay. And it's like, well, how are you going to do that? Are you going to go take all your budget to a print magazine where the CPMs or the, the cost for advertising is, uh, you know, tenfold what it is for online? Or are you going to go try and be a little bit more smart about how you're using your dollars? I mean, like, do you think that's the case? Was the recession that tipping point? Or is it just younger people coming into the industry and taking over key roles? Or what, what brought that change about in your mind? I think it's more just 
I maybe the recession had something to do with it, but I'm sure the recession did have something to do with it because it forced everyone into change, you know, because the things that worked, you know, last year just all of a sudden didn't work anymore. Like the money dried up, like couldn't do it. But also I think just like the implementation of new technology, you know, everyone having greater access to information easily, it just all those things together combined to have that shift. You forget about smartphones being like, I mean, still in eight, 2008 and nine, there was still kind of the, the wave of smartphones was still crashing. Like, yeah, most people absolutely had them, but not to the level even just a couple years later and a couple years after that. It, now it's so ubiquitous yes. that a lot of our information is gathered straight from that thing. And even myself, who I'd rather have a laptop open than surf it on my phone, I'm getting to the point though where I'm comfortable with the apps and the bullshit that's on the phone to where I'm, I'll use it at, on the internet more than what I used to. Just now though, only in the past couple of years. Whereas you might have adopted that in 2006. Right, you probably had an iPhone when they first came out. Was that 2007, 2007? Yeah, 07. Right? <clears throat> so I mean, that's the, that I think is the biggest sea change of all of it, and we forget about it because again, it's so ubiquitous. We're around them all the time. It's part of our lives in such a way. But that was still right? ten years ago. I if know. It came out in 2007. That was ten years ago. Yeah, the sure. Funny, that's the, the crazy part for me. Yeah, the funny is. thing is, I I didn't adopt my first iPhone till 2010. Before that, I was just BlackBerry only, and my friends would just make fun of me. They're like, "You're an idiot. Like, why would you not get?" iPhone, you're so stupid. You're an idiot. And then finally, in 2010, when I got that iPhone, I'm like, oh my God, you guys were so right. Like <laughs> I was an idiot. <laughs> like I really was an idiot. I was stuck in the Stone Ages, you know. <laughs> and I had a BlackBerry until like 2013. It depends on how you use it, right? Um, it, and and for for a lot of motorcyclists, I you know we're we're seeing straight up the bulk of motorcyclists are still old white men, older. <laughs> and that's, that was what I think is what's driving a lot of this and what you guys are talking about, which is the old white men are still just creeping along into some of this new technology and might not be on the online side. And I'm not hating. I'm just calling it out for what it is. And that is, it's going to take some time to adopt and you, get used to this stuff. Right? You touched on the subject in your, in the, in a victory a podcast a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I, I was laughing about the old white man thing, but I mean, it's funny, but it's kind of true too, you know? Yeah, sure. And, and, you know, when you have people, you know, in positions of power making decisions, you know, you're just kind of at the mercy of them a little bit, you know? Yeah. And when they're ready to, to do the next thing, then you are too. And sometimes it takes them a while to figure out what that next thing is or adopt the information yeah. that other people have already adopted. And I think, I think that really is, I think that really is a, a good point because maybe that's more of what, what happened in the motorcycle industry where the, the old white men in power, the old white men that were making decisions as the online space became more important to their day to day versus getting the information from say a print magazine. Then they started placing more weight in it. And we were having this conversation before the show about about the the nature of podcasting in the motorcycle industry and how it can be really hit or miss because if you get a person that doesn't listen to podcasts and don't get it, then they just they just sit there and they're like, so it's like radio, but it's online? <laughs> okay, whatever. <laughs> but like you get these guys that are like diehard podcast consumers and it's like a light bulb goes off about their head like, oh yeah, I want to be involved. I want to be a part of it. Let's Let's talk. Let's figure it out. I feel like that's just the same way the internet was, you know, 
five, 10 years ago where it was just like the guys that were using it, the guys that were into it, and it was already a part of their day to day were switched on and got it. Like you didn't have to really pitch them on the internet. They already got that part. Now it's just how did you fit in against all the other guys in the internet? So, you know, maybe that'll just evolve as we see younger guys come in or, or, you know, other things become the priority levels change, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally see what you're saying. I think there are some similarities between, you know, like the when the internet started, get, started getting popular and how podcasts and how some people don't really understand podcasts. I think it's a little bit different, but I, I know what you're saying. Yeah. But I mean, I, for one, like I think these podcasts are just cool. You know, I use them when I have to kill a lot of time when I'm driving. Now, that's you know, what most that, people yeah. for sure tell us. They're like, this is so rad. I have to do this commute or I'm going to be going on this trip. And I, I binge listen to a bunch of podcasts on my way. Rad. Okay, cool. That's interesting to know that a lot of our, I don't know, our compatriots, really friends of ours that are into it, that's when they use it. So that's really an intro. Not off, often they're, they're sitting at home listening to podcasts, but it seems to it that's the car thing. No, it, it's not like TV. We're like, I'm going to wind down my day with a nice little podcast. Maybe there's some people that do that, but I always hear it's like it's at work. Like they have some sort of job or they have headphones on and it's... They they're, working busy, a, they're working in an assembly noise. line or they're yep. doing something where they're just they're they're their own person. They don't need to talk to anyone. They just got the earphones in, they're doing their jam. Or they're like, I guess it sounds like all three of us really, where I'm sitting in my car, I can't look at my phone because I'm I would dri- I would drive yeah. into a cliff. <laughs> so I'm gonna listen to something. Like I was always big into books on tape, and then I discovered podcasts, and I was like, Oh, this is way better than listening to a, a 13 CD treatise on Julius Caesar. Yeah, but and, that's and, that, and that's the reality of of where we're going with how to get information in people's eyeballs and ear holes, right? And the other one was interesting like you were saying that you have treat you treat Instagram now almost like a video game like the way you have to interact with Instagram as a job or in a personal way. Is it mostly for the job? Now you're trying to figure out how to play the game of of Instagram? Is that what you meant? Well, it actually it it started off it started off as a job back at Motorcycle USA when I was doing Instagram. Like my friends, they had personal accounts. You know, I was actually kind of a late adopter. I didn't really get into Same it until 2011. You know, my <laughs> friends again would make fun of me, like, "Why don't you get Instagram?" I'm like, "Well, because I have Twitter and Facebook, and I don't even want to deal with another thing." And then finally, you know, I started doing it for work. You know, I'm like, God, we work at a media company. We should probably have Instagram. So started an Instagram account, started, you know, filling it up with stuff, you know, started to get into it shortly after, made my own personal account because I wanted to post stuff that was non-motorcycling and just have my own independent voice, obviously. So started doing that, you know, and have pretty much been doing it ever since, and you know, I really enjoy it. Like I always look at some of my adult friends that play video games and they'll be on their phone, you know, playing whatever video games. I'm not a video game guy, so I, I just never play them. But for me, like literally Instagram is like my video game, like like taking the right photo, you know, getting the right crop, picking the right filter, editing it outside of Instagram and then importing it into Instagram you know, writing the right caption, you know, tagging the right people, the right hashtags, like it, it's for sure a job and, yep. and to be effective at it, it's not easy. It's not an easy job by any means, but for me, it's a fun challenge and I, I enjoy it. I quite literally 
think it's kind of fun like a game. So are you the one curating the uh, the for the writer's domain? Uh, is that only you or are there multiple people within the company that do it? I'm pretty much, I mean, my other colleagues are, are plenty capable at doing that, but I'm kind of taking it as my baby right now. Gotcha. You know, listening to you talk about Instagram, because we were just at a press launch not too long ago with <laughs> AGV. And their AGV Dionysia are really switched on to having their kind of brand ambassadors and what they call social media they love it. influencers. And we've seen other brands starting to latch on to that. And again, it's one of those things where like the, the motorcycle industry is probably a little bit late to the game because we've seen like the fashion industry has been doing this for like a decade and other industries have been doing it before, before us in the motorcycling world. But it is interesting to see like at press launches and, and events like that mixed in with, I would say, let's call them hardcore journalists the more social media, everyday consumer kind of journalists or enthusiasts. And like, I, I mean, how do you see that? What's your opinion on that? Let's put it that way. What's your, what are your <laughs> thoughts? Give me Adam's thoughts on that. Well, first off, I think it's absolutely, it's really funny to me. You know, I, I always think it's funny when companies, like I'm never going to fault anyone for trying something new, you know, like, I love trying new things and stepping outside the box and just swinging the bat sometimes. But the social media influencer thing, it like I get it and I understand what they're trying to do. And I think for some, you know, industries and 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 types of like things like fashion and stuff like that, it works. But in the motorcycling thing, like, you know, I think it's maybe not the best use of resources. But what, why is that? Because they don't translate to sales or it doesn't feel authentic or the people that, that are kind of in that realm don't as, have as much experience. Like what's, what's the issue? I don't know. There's, there's any number of things. I mean, some people say that you can't track the metrics. Other people say you can totally track the metrics. 5,000 people liked it and 6,000 people saw the impressions and stuff like that. But I don't know, like, from my standpoint, like as a motorcyclist, you know, I ride motorcycles because it's like a real thing. Like I'm doing it. I'm feeling it. I'm in that moment. Like it, it's so, it's so authentic. It's, it surpasses the word authentic. It's so real. Like it's, you're doing it. <laughs> and like to have, to try to bring like influencers to try to feed me like like if I was following some guy like oh that guy's got a AGV Corsa R helmet oh I want the, I, I would never do that because he has it I don't that doesn't mean I need it like it just I don't really see the connection like well isn't that what you do as a journalist though because like I hear guys or and gals well maybe not gals in this example but they'll see like what I'm wearing in a, in a picture or at a press launch or whatever and be like oh I like that jacket I want to wear that jacket or or Jensen's wearing that helmet brand a lot. Maybe that's a better helmet brand. I'm going to wear that helmet brand instead of the other one because I see all the journalists wearing that. You bring up a really good point. And, and I agree with that. But what I'm trying to say is if I saw some random inf influencer person, like I, I don't know, man. I just – I know what you're saying and I agree and that's kind of what we're doing. Like when we go on these press launches, you know, and we, we get new gear – you know, obviously we all want to have new gear because having new gear rocks, obviously. But at the end of the day, the whole point why Arai is giving us the new Quantum 
X helmet is because they want us to use it so we can share the photos that we have wearing it and ultimately sell more helmets or and, get more and exposure. Way more legitimacy, even to my mind, and it always was when a journalist, somebody that was trusted and uh, deep in the industry, had the gear on way more than the local Skippy that was the hot, had, just had a bunch of money. And that, and, right? And that, that, that's what I'm starting to interrupt. That's what I'm trying to get at. Like, if I trust you, like, if I trust you, I will buy anything from you. But if you're just some like fly by yeah. night person that I don't know, well, you're just the fly and by I night think person I don't know. We're starting to see the uh, over the course of time. I think people are starting to be able to tell the fakery, right? The true posers, right? It's literally posers posing for pictures, right? Um, they're, yeah, they're that's literally what it is. It's posers and posers, right? Whatever, whatever that term is. We're seeing this over and over and over again. I don't hate on them. I, in the beginning, I was. I knew a bunch of them, and I'd see them, and I'd be like, that person cannot ride, could not ride out of a wet paper bag. That person is not legitimate. That is not authentic. They are faking the funk, and that pisses me off. Now, I'm kind of like, well, you know, in this in this world of, you know, a friend of mine just coined it hashtag adventure. If you want to go on a hashtag adventure, go for it. And it really is just take a selfie in front of a mountain, but not actually go on the mountain, right? That That's the thing is that you, we're starting to be able to sort the wheat from the chaff. I think, but at least for us in it, of course we can tell, but I think even the general populace is starting to be able to weed it out a little bit here and there and say, okay, that person isn't quite legit and but you know what what is it they still friends with them on facebook or they're still instagram following and they'll still click like when they see it if it's pretty and if it's well curated and it looks good and it has the right caption and the hashtag has brought it up to your attention and it's got to the eyeballs so that's that's what's frustrating is it's still even if there's people that are like oh yeah that's fake but um that's a beautiful bike or it's fake but look at those boobs or oh it's <laughs> fake but right whatever it is but that's i never legit. say that that's, that's part of the deal right it's part <laughs> of the safe, deal safe. right and, and in the in the motorcycle realm which is um uh, for better or worse uh, uh you know a male bent thing that's kind of what we see as uh going on is there's you know if tna starts ruling the roost and that that's unfortunate because then it i i i think there's parts of that that are not yeah. good well then um, we're not promoting motorcycles we're just promoting boobs yeah right so we want to promote i like promote both i'm a, I'm a big fan of both, I'm a fa really. yeah i'm not i'm not discriminating i'm an equal opportunity enthusiast sure but but it's one of those ideas like like and this has always been always been my issue with those people that say sex sells because it's that <laughs> idea of like sex sells but sex doesn't sell your product sex sells itself so when you get the scantily clad woman on the bike, like like go to Eichmann and you see these 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 <laughs> these booth girls, these the booth babes is is the coined phrase. And they're on the bike and everyone's taking the picture of them. It's like I don't think anyone's looking at that photo for the bike. Like I would love to it's it's probably not something we can we can measure, but I would love to know the uptick in sales that you got from from all those photos of the of the scantily clad woman on the bike versus the bike just by itself because I don't think people are going around like, man, check out that MV Augusta. Did you see those those slicks? Oh, they're so great. I think it's like a 200. It's got to be like a 200. Maybe it's a 190. <laughs> it looks like a 200. No, no, no. They're going like, did you see Did you see Esmeralda there? Yeah. I know what you're saying and, and I agree to you to a certain extent. I, you touched, you talked about this in the same podcast I listened to last time with the victory with the, you know, that, that whole thing. Yeah. But I don't know, like, I remember a, a, 
a booth babe photo from Ikema last year. Um, it was on the some babe, some Italian babe was on a, the GSXRR, the you know the, the Suzuki's yeah. MotoGP bike, and that photo is still like it's ingrained in my head. And it's not because you know she, the woman in the photo wasn't that scantily clad by any means, but she was a good-looking woman on a excellent looking bike and it just looked cool man and and it's i know what you're saying you know but at the end of the day that i always think about that that bike and that photo you know and it's that's that's the whole point of you know putting you know the cute chick on the bike is hopefully i think so you think about that you know i mean that's that's a very i'd say that's a very male perspective right because like at the end of the day like sure i feel like and this is a very American point of view, but we're selling motorcycles on cool. Where it's like, like, okay, so you're you're a twenty something dude. You're single. You're out there. You're you're adventurous. You're dynamic. Go get this sweet sport bike, and this hot girl's gonna be on the back, and you're gonna go right off into the sunset together. You're you're, you're like Maverick and Top Gun with <laughs> totally. Kelly, making out with Kelly McGinnis on the back of you know his Honda eighty six oh, Ninja Cowie. Yeah, yeah Ninja yeah. And you're just sitting there, just that's that's the epitome of what we're selling, and that might be why. This industry is ninety percent male. It yeah. continues. It, it's a self fulfilling thing. Yeah, because that's, worse cause that's worse, how yeah. we're because that's how we're speaking. That's the language we're speaking to consumers, and the only consumers that it's going to resonate with are guys, dudes. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, our, in in your your situation with what you guys are doing, kind of with a lifestyle motorcycle lifestyle, um, are you gonna do bike reviews? Are you gonna do just gear reviews? Are you gonna do? Are you gonna do whatever you can get? We want to do it all. So we want to do it all just like every other company in the world. Um, obviously, bike reviews are important. That's what the a lot of customers and fans and people want to read about. That's what I want to read about. I want to see what the 2017 1299 Super Legier is all about. But you have to balance that with you know other forms of editorial um if we're going to be a rider's resources if we're going to help people learn how to ride and 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 aid aid our industry in growing the amount of motorcyclists here in the country we're going to have to do other stuff you no, know you hit to- on that's a really big thing to hit on cuz I, I i think that's one thing that's lacking is people aren't really focusing on creating motorcyclists and creating enthusiasts they're just kind of like short-sighted just just looking at selling that thing that's in front of them but not building more because we're i think we're losing a lot of our enthusiasts to other things right other other forms of having fun and i think that's a very big deal that you're what you're talking about for sure. motorcycles are expensive motorcycles are dangerous you know like uh, i feel now that we've started this company i really feel like we like if there's one thing we should be doing, it should be doing that kind of stuff, you know, creating a resource where people can learn, you know, not just about the new XYZ one, two, three bike, but you know, how to ride them, how to be safer, how to pick a good helmet, what makes, what's the difference between a leather uh, jacket and a textile one, why a full face helmet, why a half, half helmet, what are the Snell ratings, what's DOT ratings, like, I think that's pretty much our number one job right now. And, and, and we haven't really, like I said, we're just starting. So we're trying to do a whole bunch of things all at once, but that's one, one area where we as a new media commerce entity needs to kind of focus its resources. You mentioned something I want to, I want to loop back to when you were talking about the Instagram and social media influence and things like that. And 
we're talking about, I think the best word to describe is legitimacy and maybe authenticity when it comes to those kind of online personalities. But what do you think about that in, in terms of the space of, of just motorcycle journalism as a whole? You know, cause that, that was one of the things that when I first started online was where the bad print guys would go. <laughs> You know, that was like, you couldn't, you couldn't get a job with Cycle World. You weren't good enough. You were either your writing wasn't good enough or you're, you're just a hack or whatever it was. It was a negative that you were in, in online. And that was one of the stigmas, especially like in, in MotoGP with Dorna. I know my colleague, David Emmett, that was like the stigma he had to overcome. Same stigma at Motor. You, you wouldn't even believe that. Totally. I yeah. totally know what you're saying. But, but now we've seen, you know, online kind of, I don't know if that stigma is there as much, although I think the priority is still based towards print. But it feels like some of that might be just in how the the industry views those different mediums with legitimacy. And then maybe, I, I don't know, I wonder if like the consumers find a different or, or value those those sources differently. And, and then that then spins into the social media side of it, which is like another layer of that cake. Well, yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that times are a changing, you know, things are changing you know, the whole world of journalism, media, what is journalism, what is media, what is social media, it's all starting to blur. But and I now we have alternative facts. <laughs> <laughs> I still feel, I feel it's really important to have that integrity. You know, like, as storytellers, it's our job to tell the truth, you know, to separate fact from fiction, you know, whether it's reporting on Harley Davidson's quarter four earnings or testing the Yamaha YZF-R1 at the track. Like, it's our job. There's so much fake stuff and nonsense and posers on Instagram, posers everywhere. And, and that's the thing, like, to really, to become a trusted source, to become a, a, uh, industry or an outlet or someone that you can truly have faith and believe in and rely on, you got to tell the truth, man. And it doesn't mean just telling the truth today or telling the truth tomorrow. It means you have to base everything you do on that. And I think when you do that, that's when the people start latching on and they're like, oh my God, like those guys, they know what's up. They are not going to steer me wrong. They're going to tell me the truth. You know, yeah, there's these other great, you know, news sources or other great social media channels. And yeah, I check them out, but, but these are the guys. And I think it's important for guys like us to, to hold that true and not just, you know, I'm going to post a sick, you know, I'm going to write a bike test where the bike was awesome, where it really was maybe not totally awesome. Or I'm going to post a photo of the XYZ helmet and say it was the best helmet ever because it looks cool, but maybe it wasn't the best helmet ever, but they gave me a free one. You know, I think it's important for us to to, to do the truth, do the right thing, you know? Yeah. Well, like, I know you and I, we've sat down and talked about a couple of the bikes in my garage and you're like, oh, I hate that bike. Oh, I hate that one. Uh, <laughs> that one. Uh, why would you buy that one? <laughs> and you can have like a good conversation and that's and that's the debate, right? Where it's like you can have two differing opinions about a machine. I know Quentin got a little hate mail the other day because he was he was irritating some Victory Vision owners 
Yeah, I saw that. Why you didn't like the vision? I love the vision. See, I yeah, literally right? love the vision. I, that That's was like because you're from Minnesota. <laughs> Minnesota. <laughs> that when that bike came out, my God, you would pull. The, you would be on that bike, and you would stop at a gas station, and people would just be like, "What? What is that thing? Tell me now. Are you going to the moon? You know? Yeah, because it looked crazy. It did. It looked crazy. And at the time, it was actually like a really like technologically savvy motorcycle. You know, when that thing. At least for like cruisers and thank stuff, you, for thank God's sake, you. you know, the, the, where, where it was <laughs> in cruisers. the space. It yeah. Was, yeah. yeah, for I mean, for, an, for an antiquated motorcycle, it was quite advanced. <laughs> but it wasn't that antiquated. It's just not a. It's not a Goldwing. Well, I'm yeah, sorry, it's not you a Goldwing. Goldwing. And, that, that, right? and that's where I would disagree with you. Where you sit there and like, oh, Goldwing, this Goldwing. You could not pay me enough money to get on a Goldwing. Oh, I love Goldwings it. rule. They're amazing. Yeah, you right? guys They're can have. You guys, I will. I will deed to you all my Goldwings. Well, hold on. I love but, Goldwings. But let's let's talk about. That. I'm curious because I think we should kind of dig into this because I'm interested. Why would you? So you rate the Victory Vision high and a Goldwing high. You think the Victory Vision? Do you think it's a different style of bike or what would? I think they they look the same to me. They do the same thing to me. I wouldn't rate the Victory Vision high. The Goldwing is undoubtedly a superior machine. But all I'm saying is I like that motorcycle. Yeah, it has okay. some flaws. Got it. Yeah, the build quality was not the best. Yeah. But I still thought it was cool. Okay, fair enough. Got it. I, I like that. Well, on that in this in this vein, what have you ridden recently that you can talk about that would you would like to talk about that's rad? Anything really cool recently? God, you guys are going to think I'm an idiot, but, you know, recently I've just been riding Suzuki's 2016 GSX-R 600. Now, this is the bike that's Is been, that like the 2015 model? It's like the 2015 model. <laughs> which is like the 2014, which is almost just like the 20- The 13, 12, and 11. So that thing is literally yeah. Five years old now. Oh, it's even like it's six even, years it's old. Really, almost even older than that. Yeah, like six years old. It came of, out in 2011. Yeah, so. but minor which revisions. Which 600 is not that old or barely, barely iteratively no, changed. It's fair because even the new R6 is just the old the R6. The old R6 with, with the new fork with and stuff. traction control and yeah, stuff. yeah. Some and and it looks a little bit better, different, right? For sure. But that's it. it. From a structural standpoint, the the CBR is the same. The Kawasaki's, they've been the same for a long time. So, yeah, you can't hack on it, especially if it's good. So, if you're saying the GSX-R600, that, is it like a, do you have one as a long-term test? Do you own it? Yeah, I just had one as a long-term te- test unit. And, you know, it's just, you know, we're always trying to ride the latest and greatest, the new whatever's new that year, the flashiest bike with all the electronics and doodads that we saw at ICMA last year. That's what we want to ride. But... Being able to ride this, you know, old school 600, especially now because 600s are so out of popularity and, you know, that that whole 600cc inline four is just, it's been deemed not appropriate for street riders. But you know what? Like, I think it actually is very appropriate for street riders. Like that Jixxer 600 little bike, just it, it kicks butt, man. It's fast. It's fun. You can bring your girlfriend on the back. It's relatively comfortable. You can throw some bags on it, you know, on a taller windscreen, do some light-duty touring. Um, it, it pops wheelies. It does slides. It gets 40 miles to a gallon. Like, it's so nimble. It slices through L.A. traffic like no other motorcycle made. And I think that's really cool, you know, and that's why I just – it's cool to ride some – it's kind of cool to ride an older bike – that hasn't been updated in six years, but still checks all the boxes for me. I that's cool, you know. 
I think I think the issue with the super sport class has always just been the fact that super sports and super bikes were always sold on on newness and, yep. and features. And this one's got five more horsepower than last year's model, Absolutely. and it's got this feature and that feature, and that's why you should buy it. And they plateaued in the late two thousands, right? the The newest R six kind of got it up to that plateau, and the rest followed suit. How much faster are you going to go? Not a lot, or else the OEMs would have done something. Whereas back when I started and I was on a CBR 600 F2, it was a marked difference to go to the F3. And then, holy crap, to the F4. And then the Yamaha was on the Kawasaki, the ZX6RR, and on and on and on. Every one of those that was ramping up, and there was it was, a, it was definitely a ramp, not a plateau, of performance because those bikes were getting faster and faster and faster. But at that time, you got to think of that time, your bike that you were talking about earlier, the ZX7R, Holy crap, weight and horsepower, not even close. And you're, that R6 was 10 times better, right? Than Dude, that. the ZX7R weighed, weighed probably 500 pounds yeah, sure. and it made 108 horsepower. Those bikes are obnoxious fast. My bike, my F2, I, I was that was not a beginner bike. You probably shouldn't get on that as an 18-year-old, but I did, and I managed to live. Me too. Uh, not cool. Yeah. Some right? of my friends did too. Yeah. I love that too. That was my first it was, bike. You, it, it was yours too. Yeah. That was a great bike, and, man. And you can't hack it. 80 horsepower-ish, 90, maybe 90, whatever it is. It was blue blue Lockhart Phillips windscreen, <laughs> right? Absolutely. That's sure. right. Remember so, the tank skin? The Lockhart oh, yeah. Phillips tank skin? Sure. Really color match. Oh my gosh. So we're, 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 we're dating our ourselves <laughs> pretty badly. But that, for, for my generation, I would say, in that 90, growing up in motorcycles in the 90s, you could you were on a bike that was relatively safe, not too much rubber, but the local club racers would haul ass on it and do some good times, no doubt. Then it got into once the 600 started to get 180s, once they started to get the same tire sizes as the superbikes, that was about when it started to plateau a bit. And then the superbikes with thousand cc's were gnarly, right? In the late 90s, when the R1 first came out, everybody else had had CBR 900 RRs since the early 90s, but the R1 came in and the Jixer thousand, and then it was like. Yeah, it was. It was Halcyon days back in, in the early 2000s um, of sport bikes. And now it's kind of seemed to have waned in a weird way. And I don't know why it feels like that. I don't know if that's just my, but I see more people getting an adventure touring. Myself being like, I'm way more into dirt bikes than I ever would have ever thought. I like riding crotch rockets, but it's not like my first think. My first think now is... I want to go really long distance and I want to go off road. No, right? I, I just I, I want to go see cool stuff. I right? knew I knew you got old when when the idea of like a 150 horsepower adventure bike didn't get you turned yeah, on. Yeah, totally. When you told me you're like I'd rather have the 100 horsepower Africa Twin instead yep. of the 160 horsepower yep. KTM. I was like a Quentin. Quentin's. I don't uh, even know it who got he is too anymore. loud and I'm too old. Yeah. There it is. Get right. Off, get Absolutely. off my lawn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, how and how? So how do you view that relative to what we're seeing in motorcycling in general? We're talking about how difficult it is to get people in the motorcycling. What about the industry as a whole? Where it is with what the mix of bikes is? What do you think? Is it good, bad, or indifferent? Well, man, I think we live in a. If you like riding motorcycles or want to ride motorcycles, God, you live in the heyday right now. There are so yeah. many you know, micro subcategories within each major OEM's model lineup, like, you know, whether you want to ride a Scrambler or a 500cc scooter or, a, you know, a 600cc sport bike or a big, humongous, heavy adventure touring bike or a smaller adventure touring bike. Like, this, the options are unlimited these days. I think we live in a great time for, for, for motorcycling and being a motorcyclist. You know, sometimes I worry that, I mean, all these 
manufacturers of all these cool, not all of them, but, you know, companies like Yamaha, um, they've diversified their portfolio so heavily. Sometimes I feel like they could maybe even get in trouble where, you know, they're spreading themselves so thin that maybe they're not going to be able to sustain that kind of pace, you know, making all these small motorcycles, making an SCR 950, making a you know, Star Bolt, making a right. whatever other motorcycle. Six they have. variations of the same bike kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, and I get what they're trying to do. And Yamaha is actually really smart and clever because, you know, they're they're using that that same base and just tweaking really small stuff that, I mean, I wouldn't think costs a whole lot of money in ter- terms of R&D and testing. Yeah. But it still does cost money. And if those bikes aren't selling, it's not going to be good. So sometimes I get worried about that, but... I think we live in a, a a great day and age for motorcycling. To kind of touch on why those 600s are, you know, just not popular anymore is, you know, they just cost too much. You know, $11,200 yeah. for that Jixxer 600, which, you know, it's the same price it's been since 2011, thankfully. But, you know, those bikes are, they're expensive to manufacture. Like, those things are high-performance racing machines. Like, yeah, you ride them on the street. You know, yeah, they're actually pretty good de- street bikes too believe it or not but those things are built you know tight to go fifteen thousand yeah. rpm their, for their tolerances are tight yeah they are their titanium valves are no bs the the crankshafts the camshafts all that stuff started to get like yeah it's not just that it's high tech because a lot of people would argue well it's got two camshafts crankshafts and valves in the head how much more really can it well it's machine time it's getting all that stuff to work at super tight tolerances to perform the way it's going to perform with valve adjustment intervals that are really long and be able to race at a high level it's it's gnarly you're right and it got it started as it plateaued with the 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 sharp end of it and then you got to put electronics on all of them so then they starts to stack up the cost there and stack up more and more and more it's it, it it is an arms race right now, and a lot of that is electronics, and I think that adds a lot of expense because it's uh, R and D, right? Well, it's, it's just testing. That's like yeah. the, one of the biggest sure. expenses. Well, and on top of that, like look at look at how the electronic space is is coming together. Where and this is one of the things that I worry about, especially in like the superbike and super sport markets, where it's not the OEMs that are really necessarily developing these these packages. Yeah. Some of them are. Some of them are building their packages. No, they're paying Bosch, man. But they're they're paying Magneti Morelli. They're, they're paying for the Bosch system. They're paying for the Continental system. They're paying for the Magneti Morelli system. So it's like some of the a lot of the differences I feel like we're seeing now in the superbike market isn't like what Ducati's doing versus Aprilia or Honda versus Suzuki. It's what what, what's what Mitsubishi relative what, to Bosch? Yeah, what's uh, what uh, OEM parts supplier are they are they working with? What what aftermarket company? You know. But even if they're, it, you know, obviously they're working with suppliers, but it's it's not as just simple as you know, like sourcing Olean suspension and slapping it on and calling it good. I mean, if you look at like Ducati with what they did with their Panigale twelve nine nine, you know, they, you know, they use that Olean's EC system where yeah. you know they have the computer controlled suspension, yeah. and you look at the the handling dynamic of that bike versus Yamaha. And the YZF-R1M, you know, same suspension supplier, same suspension components, two totally different handling machines. And not just, you know, Yamaha, Ducati, but the 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 suspension, the way it reacted, the way it moved was, you wouldn't even think it was the same suspension. But that comes back, 
I think that almost proves my point in a way, though, because Ducati is using the Bosch IMU system. And at that point in time, unless you're on a 2017 model, I believe. 2015 and 2015. Right. But, but I'm just saying, so this this model year, though, the, the IMU got an upgrade. So now the IMU can talk to the suspension, whereas before it wasn't. Whereas on Yamaha's system, they're using a different six-axis IMU versus the Bosch five-axis. And it is tied into the suspension. So it is like almost like who you're working with in a way. And uh-huh. I swear to God that the Panigale wasn't tied, the suspension wasn't tied into the IMU. I thought it was. That was the whole point of it. Not in those early models, I don't think. The 2015? No, yeah. God, I swear because, to God. Because it's the same update that they did for 2017 is the one that's allowing them to do the cornering ABS, the race cornering ABS, which they couldn't do before either. It had cornering. It had, it had cornering ABS, but if you talk to the Bosch people, they would say, like, this is this is for street use. This isn't something that's been developed for the racetrack. It race wasn't track. like the one on the HP4. It wasn't like the one on the KTM, you name it. Maybe but I'm wrong. Was, I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure which one. I, To be honest with you, after all this, I'm thinking about <laughs> we're, it. We're like, the fact check some yeah, no, yeah, yeah, think but, but, you My know, journalistic integrity is in. <laughs> no, yeah. Can you, I can't blame either of you. Myself, I was working for the freaking company at the time, and I don't remember if... The IMU, I know that it was not the same level as the Yamahas. And when I asked, we were at Italy, we were in Bologna, and I asked one of the engineers, because it had just come out that the, the M1 was going to have the the six-axis. And the, 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 the engineer said, you are not flying airplanes. <laughs> and when he said that, in my head, I was like, well, that's but fucked. aren't we though yeah, yeah no, you, don't, you don't you don't know what the fuck you're talking yeah. like if you have to say that that's a defensive italian posturing thing either either they that was going to be their fucking thing or they didn't know and i was like that's probably not going to be good because i would say and i'm going to guess that the for you the r1 was a be- much better general uh setup than the than the ducati or did you think it was like six and two threes depending on which way you wanted to go fast I just thought that R1M is just like unbelievable, man. Yeah, that's sure. my God. That thing. And it's obvious. It's clear that that's the case because you can get over and over and over club racers, high level racers, whatever racer, road riders, journalists, everybody loves the bike. It works really well. It's it's clear. The 1299, I, I don't know. There's just not enough. Uh, there's not enough data, not enough people that race them. That well, right? It's not the same thing. Twelve nine nine. Don't get me wrong. That thing right, is sure. That thing is that is fun personified. But I'm just saying that that literal feeling of I'm riding on rails. Yeah. The twelve nine nine. You're not riding on rails, man. The R one M. You are riding on rails. I'd but sometimes forward. it's fun not to be on rails and be a little loosey-goosey. <laughs> yeah, at- no, and I'm with you on that for sure. But that's what it, the way it felt for me. I back-to-back the HP4, whatever the BMW's yeah. highest level. Yeah. Back-to-back Which 1299 HP4. But at that was t- only in, they stopped making that in 2014. Yeah. yeah, Whatever the one in 2015 was the same year as the 2015, I got on one that had the blip shift. Well, it's not an HP4. The 2015 S1000RR had the HP4 yes. upgrades Stuff. into it. Okay. It's stock. So they that made was it. what I rode. Was the, 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 uh, they didn't do a very good job explaining to me, and I'm not a big BMW fan, so I could give a shit, but I rode them back to back, and it was like, dude, that bike's amazing. Riding on rails, amazing. But for me, as a Ducati guy, for sure, I'm dyed in the wool, as I always have been, and, and I don't make any... That's cool, man. Right? I was just way more comfortable on the Ducati because it did all the things that I'm used to doing and it felt more analog, even though it was totally digital. Whereas <laughs> the BMW felt like it wanted a robot and it was going to behave as a robot 
and it would go faster around the track because it is like a robot. Whereas the Ducati, BMW. it would be yeah. And I, you know what? Fair, fair enough. I'm not hating on either one of them, but that was that is part and parcel of what it's all about. And like you're talking about, that's R and D. That that could boil down to R and D and the culture of the company that is that is doing the R and D and how much money they're going to put into it and deciding, hey, we're going to have this level of components and it's just going to make the bikes expensive. And right now. The thousand cc market, at least from the dealership standpoint, working in for the past year, it's not it's not hot, man. It's tough. It's tough to sell big thousand cc bikes, whether it be you know I was working on the pre-owned side for a year, um, and any we were we would stay away from thousand cc uh, sport bikes, like straight up. We didn't want anything to do with any, especially Japanese. It was tough, tough to because you can buy them fairly inexpensively, well, that, and that, I I didn't want to get involved with that. There's no profit margin in them, and they're not, they're just tough to sell. And that's so weird because you know I'm so used to being in the realm when in the mid 2000s they were flying, flying off showroom floors. Right? Is that a leader bike superbike issue, or is that a Japanese leader bike superbike issue? Because because the Japanese bike, let's be let's be really frank about it. Up until this model year have been the same bikes for like the last decade. So like that's when I get like I get like a little a little poopy when I hear like you know brands talking about like oh the decline of the superbike market or superbikes don't sell anymore the sport sport bikes are dead when it's like well when you don't update those bikes for literally almost a decade of course sales are going to wane especially when everything's been selling on newest latest and greatest. Absolutely. And the brands that have been putting out in intriguing bikes are selling really well. Ducati was selling Panigale's quite well. Like BMW sell double R's quite well. The R1, when it finally got updated, blew the doors off in terms of sales. So I, I have a hard time with it sometimes because I feel like there's a chicken and the egg thing there where we're like, oh, yeah, let's complain about the sales. We're not going to put out a new bike. And then, oh, man, the sales were bad the next year. So let's <laughs> definitely not put out a new bike. And then just pff, death yeah, spirals well, into and, the oblivion. And that definitely happened. And then the plateau performance was also there as well because I can go by a bike from 2010 to 2012 that performs really just as well as something that I'd buy right now. So I can sure. go buy a pre-owned bike for significantly less, know that all I have to do is slap a fresh set of tires on it, and it's probably going to get me around the racetrack or get me on the canyon road uh, with just as much alacrity and, and aplomb as any any new thing. So we're starting to see people getting frugal and saying, do I really need that latest greatest? Maybe not. I don't think it's so much a plateau of performance from, from the OEM standpoint. I mean, you know, all it takes to make so, a, a better bike is just more cash. I mean, all it takes, I mean, that's a tall order obviously, yeah. but I think it's, it's just hard for, for some of these companies to, to invest all that money in R and D you know, because, I mean, I remember a couple of years ago, MV Augusta told us, I think you were at that thing, Jensen, the F3800 with Brian Gillum. No, I wasn't. Okay. Well, a couple of years ago, we were at a, a MV Augusta sport bike press launch and they just released the uh, the F3 675. This was a all new motorcycle for them. Yeah. You know, the inline three, all new engine, um, all new engine. We were talking about how much money... Uh, it cost to to engineer that bike, and I forget the exact number, but I'm pretty sure that that to to make that that motorcycle and that three cylinder engine platform, MV Augusta invested thirty million dollars to do that. That's Easily. how much that bike cost to build. Easily, and and for MV to invest that much money in building that bike, just think how much a new 
GSXR 1200R would cost. Like think like that's going to probably cost $40 million, if not more, $50 million. And, and for what? Like how many of those bikes are you going to actually even sell? How long are you even going to be able to sell that bike? You know, before yeah. it needs to be updated again, more R and D costs, more testing, more engineering. So I think that, I think that's probably one of the, the reasons why you're seeing these companies kind of go away from that. Just because it's not that they can't do it. They absolutely can do it. It's just, do they want to spend that amount of cash to do it when they could use that money for a more economical machine that they're yeah. going to have more profit on, they're going to spend less money on, they're going to be able to make it for longer. That That's that's Polaris. That's Victory and Indian in a nutshell. Why am I going to spend $100 million on Victory to get that brand working when I can spend $10 million on Indian and get the same exact you know, revenue to my, to my top line, or heck, I could spend that hundred million and make even more. That's the real, that's the, the, if you want to boil down the victory closure in a nutshell, that's it right there. It's available resources. Why am I spending all this money making a sport bike to make, I don't know, a hundred million yen when I could spend it on an adventure bike and make a billion yen. And, and then heaven forbid the bike you make like, let's say you make like a, 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 a super bike that hasn't been updated in eight years and you, you just give it kind of a gloss over and then you take it to the press launch and no one likes it. And everyone says, you know, like, uh, yeah, it's better than the old one, well, but not it's not, much. but it's not the best one in the market now. And it's still like, you know, you were coming in last in super bike shootouts and now you're probably still going to come in last in the super bike shootouts, but you've spent, you know, a hundred million yen doing it. <laughs> That's tough. It's tough. You man, know, yeah. That's the danger, right? Yep. yep. Or you build a bike like, say, Suzuki did in the late 90s, the TL. And then you say, all right, what can we do with that? And once it didn't take off, what can we do with that engine? And then you, you churn out V-Stroms and figure out other places to repurpose it. BMW saying, you know, that S1000RR engine, it's a brick shithouse. We might as well put it in this adventure touring bike, right? We can we can vibrate people to death over here. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, though, it's, uh, it makes sense. That works. And and there's a lot of people with the, what is that bike called? XR? The, the S1000XR. Yeah. You know, figure out a way to put that engine. Hey, was the Panigale engine ever going to be an adventure tour? I, I don't think so. Probably not right? the way it was designed in terms of being the part of the chassis. Yeah. But we see it with the Tesla Strata motor where it's like, hey, let's just put this in everything. Yeah, sure. We'll put, that, it, in, we'll put it in our cruiser. Yeah, we'll but put that it in engine is tour. the same basic structure from 1979, 80 on. So it just got iterated and iterated and iterated and iterated and on and on and on. And it works out in that way for Ducati. And it's pretty rad that they have that. And they've kept it for that reason because they knew they could continue to iterate on it. I have two of them in my garage and they're almost 10 years apart in model year. Yeah. It's cool. That's the 1198 Superbike engine. That's cool that they were able to repurpose that thing. And I mean, that's how you have to stay in this game. I think, I mean, I don't work in OEM, not an engineer, but to really be successful, you have to use those kind of engineering principles, just like in the automotive industry where they're, you know, making the chassis, making the powertrain, and then building the the cars and the trucks and the vans around those those powertrain chassis. Yeah, the platform. The platform. Right, they say, all right, we're going to have this platform and spread it as much as they can. Makes the most sense for sure. Um, switching gears, Adam, I saw that you, I just saw your video actually. You were at the Desert Sled Launch. Desert Sled. Tell us about that, because that's a bike I want to ride this year. That, I have like a short list of like three to five bikes I really want to get on this year. That's one of them. 
That so bike, wet my whistle. <laughs> that bike was a real hoot. It, it was really, honestly, it was the bike that obviously Ducati should have just kind of came out with at the get-go. <laughs> that that was the my real impression. scrambler. Yeah. That's the scrambler. This is the one that I think, I think for the journalists, we were at the scramble launch together, weren't we? The yeah, one in Palm, Palm Springs. Springs. Correct. And that's what I was sitting there going like, so so we're not going to go off-road? Are we are we going to scramble at all in the scramble launch? Like, this is a cool bike and, it, you know, it's fun, but like, I brought my dirt boots, guys. Let's go. This is this is like the bike I'm finally like, this is the bike I wanted you guys to bring out. This is the thing that Steve McQueen would go to the dealership right now and he would buy that thing and he would be riding it right now as we speak. Like this is this bike is built for him, basically. Yeah. It's just it's it's cool. It's it's you know, back in the you know, sixties and seventies, dudes were buying those, you know, the rival competition scramblers. And they would they would mod these bikes. They they were ripping them through the desert. These were street bikes. They needed to be more heavy duty. You know, they needed skid plates so that when they smack the underside of the engine, there's not gonna be a hole in the case. You know, they needed stiffer suspension. They needed a more, you know, a broader seat. And they would mod these bikes. And that's basically what Ducati's done from the factory. They've modded the scrambler, you know, they've made it heavy duty. They put a big thick tree trunk fork on it, you know, a big upgraded shock brace the frame and it's just it's the bike that you can literally like you can ride that thing off road pretty hard like i was really surprised we our test loop was it was so pg-13 it was it was challenging (laughs) it was challenging just because it was deep sand and 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 that big wide front tire just does not do good in in deep sand but the actual terrain like there weren't any big jumps there weren't any big hits that's, see, that's, see, that's funny listening to you. Sorry to interrupt you, but that's listen. It's funny to hear that perspective. And I talked to another colleague, and he was like, "This is the hardest off road I've ever done." <laughs> no, no, it was it was hard for sure. Just like I said, you're you're riding a 452 pound motorcycle in deep sand with a huge, you know, three and a half, four inch wide mm. front tire, just like a wheelbarrow of a front tire. Dude, right? it's terrible. Like, I mean. Honestly, if if you that, wanted, that just is what it is, though. It is. I mean, that's that's the that's the thing. You, I mean, if you wanted to ride that bike off road a lot, truly, you'd want to put a narrower front tire on. But then it wouldn't really fit the whole scrambler vibe. Like a narrower front tire yeah, means sure. it wouldn't be but quite it, as awesome on the street. You know, it worked. It would do the thing with with experienced riders. It had behaved fairly well. It or was cool. Was it scary? And you wouldn't want to ride ride. Or would you just need knobbier tires or something like that? No, it, it, I wouldn't say it's scary. It's definitely very capable off road. It just you just have to ride it right and know that it's going to be a little bit challenging. It's still a four hundred fifty pound dirt. Four, it's yeah. it's heavy. Like it's yeah. like you dab your foot wrong and it's going to hurt. It's four hundred fifty two pounds. What it's about heavy. road manners? Was it okay? It was excellent on the road. I couldn't believe it. Like that that stiffer suspension just paid so much dividends. Like that was the thing I didn't like about the original Scrambler was just the suspension was so soft. It was so low to the ground. You know this thing rides a lot taller um the suspension just has a lot more you know pitch resistance a lot better action you know movements controlled a lot yeah. better and you can wail on that thing like that bike's sick man and you know not, not even the riding dynamic but just looking at it like 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 that bike didn't look that awesome to me but then when i started really looking at it and comparing it to like the old original screen like that bike looks cool man that's a cool looking bike you know, and it's, I'm happy because a lot of times Ducati will have cool looking bikes that sometimes, you know, 
the performance doesn't match the awesome looks. Well, in this case, the performance absolutely does match the awesome looks. That's Ducati did really good with this bike. Would you buy one? I talked well, I about mean, that in my video. I mean, that that bike, that's the interesting thing, right? That bike costs the same amount as your Jixxer 600. It costs the same amount. Yeah. Totally. It's, wait, it's, it's 11,000. It's 11, four, it's 11, four-ish. 495. Yeah. 11, really? 495, yeah. yeah. I guess in my head, I thought it was going to be, like, because that's the, that's the cost of, like, a Scrambler classic. The, the you know, the Icon is the base one that was, like, nine grand. And then if you had the, the spoked wheels, right? That, so I... I'm surprised that it's that inexpensive. I figured it would be like thirteen thousand. This is an air-cooled Ducati yeah, twin for sure. eleven grand. That seems a little bit expensive to me. I mean, yeah, I, I'm, I think I'm more with you. Where like I, when I heard the pricing, I was like, I would love to see it at ten. I am so desensitized. Nine 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 five. Yeah. Perfect. Right yeah, there. I'm desensitized right there. to the to the Ducati realm. Straight up. Right. You're making, I hear that. And you I'm must all, be making cheap. real money. I'm over here making blogger money. <laughs> I'm on a budget. My well, coolness is on a budget. I think of your hyper and how how much you get for what it, whatever those are, fifteen grand ish, something like that. Almost, to yeah. have it four thousand less, but for me, the value there's more value in the scrambler because I'd rather have an air cooled, simpler, right? That's what that's the value. So I'm just, I guess, I'm just thinking for my value. From your point of view, when you're comparing the hyper motard at fifteen grand to the to the desert sled at eleven four nine five. For sure, the eleven four nine five desert desert sled's a deal. Yeah, but when you're kind of comparing it against the original Scrambler Icon, then you're kind of like, God, you know, this bike's you know three thousand dollars more expensive for what? You know, like yeah, the suspension's better, but geez, you know, it's the same engine, same basic frame with an extra you know weld and gusset. What does the uh, Triumph Scrambler go for? I am not sure. I wouldn't even know. I'm not sure. But that's the cool thing about the desert sled is, I I think this, I think this is funny because Triumph they that was their thing like they yeah. owned the like Triumph Scrambler like they owned it, and Ducati has has basically just leapfrogged them now with this yeah. desert sled like the bike is oh, yeah. so much more. If superior. you're I mean if you're performance focused right now. And that's kind of like a hard thing to ask almost in this space because it's very image oriented, I would say. But if you're concerned about the performance of your scrambler machine, Ducati's got the bike, By, especially on price. You know, between price performance, bang for buck, I, I'd go Ducati all day long on that. Mainly yeah. because it's 100 pounds less, I would assume, that's at the least. Part of it, right? The, 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 the yeah. weight is so much sure. lighter. And the power is not the best in class in power. I think the Beamer still makes more power, but the Beamer is so much more expensive and weighs so much more. Yeah, it's it's an it's an easy easy choice in my book. Yeah, to answer your question though, like I said in the video, like you know, eleven thousand four hundred ninety five dollars to to buy a bike and then beat it off road like that. Like I probably wouldn't ride mine off road like we were. Like it's just <laughs> too expensive to to do that on. Yeah, yeah. Um, to but, interrupt, a twenty seventeen Street Scrambler is ten seven or sorry ten thousand seven hundred. 2016 scrambler model is 9400 okay so, so right he's you're on point because that that barrier is huge right if you see 99.99 oh my god makes all the difference in the world four right? digits is better than oh, five dude in a major way that's a huge break point that's the same same even goes for like use harley davidson's i saw that very clearly it's amazing what just that number would do it's a huge difference for sure um so your video on the scrambler 
where would where would the listenership go to view this video? Oh, thanks for mentioning that. What a so, plug. You're like thank, a pro. Thank you pro. for the plug. Well, I'm curious because I want to watch it. Again, I haven't done it yet, so I apologize, but I want to see it. I did. Well, I watched it on the TV, and I okay. sent him a photo of it. Right. I was like, well, you're on my TV. Well, it's pretty easy. Just go on our website, ridersdomain.com. Okay, it's riders, plural, domain.com. R-I-D-E-R-S-D-O-M-A-I-N.com. Or just go to our YouTube channel, uh, YouTube backslash Riders Domain, one word, and that video will be right there. Rad. It's 15 minutes, so it's kind of long. I, I did it a little bit different. seems like the the vlogging, longer vlogging videos are kind of trendy right now, so I kind of did it that way. And some people liked it, some people didn't, but it was something different. It's cool. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. Thank you for, for, for not being there. I got to live vicariously through you. Well, that was cool. I just kind of basically yeah. just went on a ride, you know, so yeah, yeah. it was cool. Right. Yeah. Well, Adam, thank you for for coming in and joining us and, and talking bikes on the podcast with us. We, we greatly appreciate it. I think our, our listeners will enjoy uh, your thoughts and musings because they've been listening to just Quentin and I for like the last almost a little over a year now. They're probably sick and tired of our of our thoughts. Kickstand up. Good talk. See you out there. Bye, guys. That's bad radio. Sorry, man. Oh, man. <laughs> Look at you. <laughs> at least it's not Quentin. I got to take phone. my vitamins. I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> Woo, yeah. Woo, yeah. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs>